The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Uh, the value of uh, dealing with Galatians uh, is not simply the value of, of Galatians uh, as, an, as an individual book in, in, the way, in the same way in which we might take up <coughs> any uh, letter of the New Testament and use it as a, this is the, the book that we're going to study for a particular course. Galatians, as I very briefly point out in the beginning paragraph, um, is also especially suited as a way of um, formulating principles of interpretation. It provides a, an excellent arena for honing one's exegetical skills. And um, what I, I have tried to do in the past, and, and uh, this semester I think I will do that even more than before, is to, um, to use the letter, again, thinking not only or not primarily, of uh, you know, getting something out of Galatians, which obviously that's what you're going to be doing, but uh, to use it as a uh, jumping board, if you will, uh, jumping off board to uh, consciously uh, think about what are the implications of uh, going through this uh, letter in developing uh, principles uh, of uh, exegetical both in terms of principles and in terms of methods of exegesis. And um, that's one of the reasons that uh, a, a primary element in your uh, study will be this thing that I am in the process of writing. And I'm glad to say that three chapters are done, and they're in the bookstore. I think maybe tomorrow they will be available. Uh, the, uh, it's a parts of a book called Pauline Exegesis, Galatians as a Test Case. And... Um, you will be reading from that, and I'm hoping to uh, use that material for as the basis for discussion for a good deal of the um, of the time. In the second paragraph, <coughs> I, I make the point that I want in this course as much as possible to be always conscious of, of looking at the details in the light of the whole and to uh, spend as much time and effort as possible at the beginning of the semester to get a sense of a whole so that when we deal with particulars in the letter, uh, we can put them in, in the proper context. And as a, as a means of um, helping you do that, I have a couple of uh, preliminary assignments and so on. So um, this first week, I'm asking you to read through the letter, and, and I think you should do this at one sitting, uh, not avoiding uh, the the details. In other words, don't get bogged down with uh, particular problems in the passage, but just read through it. And they use two different versions uh, to try to give you a perspective. And, and again, what, what you want to do is to um, try to get a sense for what the teaching of the letter as a whole happens to be. And I'm also asking you, in connection with that, to look at... Um, the, new, the, the most recent edition of the Bible Commentary, 
uh, I wrote the, um, the commentary in Galatians for that. And the, um, the value that that would have for you is that, in a sense, all of the wisdom that I have <laughs> is sort of uh, summarized there. Uh, so you can rather quickly find out you know, what, I'm, what I'm up to, basically. And uh, it may also be of, of help in, uh, again, getting you to, on your own, produce a framework in your own mind as to what, what is the letter uh, doing here, uh, what, uh, what its message seems to be. And uh, so that's your, your primary uh, responsibility for this week. Uh, third paragraph, the context of Galatians includes all we know about Paul, and uh, I'm hoping that as you go through the course uh, during the semester, that you will really pay a lot of attention to reading the other letters of Paul uh, and looking for parallels, trying to get a sense for how Paul's teaching as a whole relates to what we find in, in Galatians. I have a little article, brief article, uh, on Paul in the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, and I point that out to you now because I'll begin today to talk about the historical context um, of Galatians in terms of, of the history of Paul's ministry. And I will continue that uh, next time. And uh, if you want, again, a summary in written form of, of what I will be dealing with, uh, you will find it in that uh, article. Now, <clears throat> to the uh, heart of, uh, of the course here. All this is introductory in a sense. Beginning on uh, February 28th, I'm asking you to, every week, to write a, a two-page critique of this thing that I'm uh, doing on Pauline exegesis, uh, Galatians, as a test case. So, for example, for February 28th, I, the, the topic in the class will be the history of exegesis of Galatians. And you're asked to read uh, Longenecker's commentary, which is our primary text for the course. Uh, the pages in the introduction that deal with the history of interpretation of the letter. And then you also have to uh, hand in a critique of the first chapter in this thing that I'm writing on PE, Pauline Exegesis. You should also regularly consult the standard commentaries, and I mentioned Lightfoot, Burton, Betts, Bruce, Fung, and uh, Dunn, with the purpose of identifying their comparative strengths and weaknesses. Now, let me explain what I'm uh, saying here. Probably the best uh, way for you to, uh, to meet that particular requirement, uh, you go through the passage using primarily Longenecker, and it does not mean necessarily that you read every sentence that Longenecker uh, writes, but using that as our main guidepost to the exegetical problems. And then on any given week, also spend 10, 15 minutes, something like that, depend depending on a variety of factors, uh, checking one or two other commentaries. And what you should be after is not simply, okay, what does Betts, uh, what additional information Betts gives me, but also try to be thinking in your, you know, how is Betts doing this differently? Uh, how is he treating the text in a way that it gives me a somewhat distinct perspective from the way that Longenecker 
uh, did, you see, so that by the end of the semester, you will have an informed opinion on the relative value of these commentaries. Now, the, um, the topic on February 28th, History of Exegesis, one of the things that I'm going to be doing there and that you're going to be reading about uh, has to do with just that. Um, what, uh, how does one make sense of commentaries as part of the history of interpretation? Because whether you are aware of this or not, every time you pick up a commentary, you're not simply uh, interpreting Galatians. You really have to interpret what the commentator is saying. The commentators have become part of, of that whole history of interpretation. And in a sense, they, they become part of the meaning of the text as that passage is being discussed today. And um, again, one of the main things that I'm after here is to try to get you to develop a little bit of a sense for that, you know, the, the totality of that enterprise. So that uh, whenever you use a commentary or whenever you are trying to deal exegetically with a passage, you're able to do that not in, in isolation from everything else that, that really is part of it. And uh, we'll, we'll have quite a bit uh, to say about that as, uh, as time goes on. Uh, I will be asking uh, from time to time to read some other materials. And uh, there are some passages, particularly in Reader Boss's book on Paul, that would be particularly helpful in, um, in trying to make sense of some, some of the passages in, in Galatians. Finally, <clears throat> I'm asking you to choose one passage out of the four listed there uh, to make it your special project. And what that means is <clears throat> that in, in the course of the semester, but particularly in preparation for your final exam, uh, you will uh, spend a lot of time with this passage, developing your own exegesis, as though you were to write a paper. Now, I'm not asking you to actually write a paper, but I'm asking you to do most of the research that you would normally do if you were writing a, a paper on, on the passage. And um, in the on the final exam, one of the questions will, in, in effect, ask you to summarize the results of your research. And, and there, you're going to have to show me that you have indeed uh, been using the other commentaries, that you have some sense of uh, what the relative value may be, and that you've learned something about not just Galatians as such, but about the, the process of exegesis uh, throughout the semester. All right. <clears throat> I want to... Um, talk about the book of Acts on the assumption which would be a debatable assumption, I hope you realize this, that there's some value in that <clears throat> for a uh, significant uh, circle of scholars nowadays. The book of Acts is uh, certainly a secondary source, at best, to understand who Paul was and what his teaching was all about. And um, at worst, 
it is a um, quite unreliable document that you'd better not pay much attention to if, if your real interest is understanding who Paul was. The history of interpretation with regard to that issue is uh, very interesting. And um, I don't want to um, spend time on that today. Uh, we will touch on this in one way or another throughout well, in various, uh, various points in the course. But um, it makes sense to go back to the work of um, F.C. Bauer, whom all of you know something about, I hope. <coughs> Bauer without an E. Make sure you know who are the Bauers with the E. But F.C. Bauer, in his, um, in a various uh, publications, but particularly as he synthesized much of his own research in his book on Paul, tries to deal with the methodological question of what are the proper sources to use in understanding uh, the Apostle Paul. And he makes the point, which seems very reasonable at first, that the primary documents have to be Paul's own writings. Now, as you know, Bauer was skeptical about the Pauline authorship of um, many of the letters that bear his name. And he simply focused on the um, major epistles, uh, Romans, the two Corinthian uh, letters, and Galatians. Bauer, as you know, was a historian. He was a church historian. He wasn't uh, exclusively a New Testament scholar. He spent a great deal of time dealing with the history of the church more broadly. Uh, this is an important consideration and something that, that is uh, a strength on his part <coughs> because he would look at the book of Acts, at the New Testament more generally, within the context of that broader history. And based on, on some uh, preliminary work and, uh, as a matter of fact, the research of some other scholars as well, he had come to the conclusion that on the basis of the book of Galatians especially, it, that was his primary source, we had to conclude that in the first century there was a very important and um, fundamental division between the Pauline Christians on the one hand and the Petrine Christians. That the conflict described at the end of chapter 2 of Galatians, and in fact, the, the broader <coughs> conflict that is at least implicit in the rest of the material in chapters 1 and 2, made it very plain that there were these two driving forces in the early church. And uh, you remember that um, uh, he began to um, formulate that in the context of some, you know, there's some debate as to 
uh, you know, to what extent Hegel's dialectic was an influence on uh, Bauer or not. Uh, in some books, it is just stated point blank that, that Bauer used Hegel's dialectic. It's not as simple as that, but uh, the result is sort of the same. Uh, you have Jewish Christianity, clearly evidenced in the uh, early chapters of the Book of Acts, and no one doubts that the church begins as, as Jewish. And uh, Peter and James spearheading that particular movement, that expression of the Christian gospel. But then here comes Paul, and uh, he spearhead a contrary movement, Gentile Christianity. And uh, you can begin to see that in terms of, of a thesis, Jewish Christianity, and the antithesis, Pauline Christianity, which um, leads to a uh, struggle during the first century, but eventually develops into a synthesis. The synthesis, which develops towards the end of the first century and into the second century, is Catholic Christianity. And Catholic here, you know, universal, but, but in this particular context, uh, what is in view primarily is a, um, well, a synthesis. What, what, how else can you describe it? It is a, a, a resulting merging of those two principles where you sort of domesticate the cutting edge of each of those principles and you have a, a more bland uh, type of Christianity. You want to lower that down a little bit? Thank you. Um, the book of Acts, which was thought by Bauer and many in his day, and still some do, maybe not quite in as extreme a fashion, thought to have been written in the second century, is the best or the clearest expression of that synthesis. And nothing could be more evident when you compare the book of Acts with Galatians 2, that you're dealing with two totally different periods. When you read Galatians, there is disagreement, there is conflict, there's division. When you read the book of Acts, you get this idea of peace. All the apostles are nice friends. There are no conflicts or anything of the sort. Uh, so it is obviously somebody in the second century looking back at the first century and either distorting the evidence or quite possibly somebody, you know, assuming that things must have been much more peaceful than they really were. And as you read the introductory pages in uh, Bauer's book, he makes this observation that obviously you do take Paul's letters as the primary source, your primary evidence. 
But in the case of the book of Acts, you have a person with a particular bias, and I, I don't think Bauer meant that in, in the real negative sense of somebody with bad motives. That's not the point. But the point is that he needed to prove something. And therefore, why should you believe in, in the course of historical investigation the statements of such, of such an individual over the statements of the person who was actually involved in that period? Now, the thing that I find almost amusing is that while Bauer's argument sounds reasonable at first blush, when you think about it uh, for about 15 seconds, you realize that in one sense he has actually turned things upside down. Because on the very face of it, the epistle to the Galatians is a highly polemic, polemical document. Acts is not explicitly polemical. Paul is certainly, what's the best word to uh, describe him? Emotionally involved as he writes Galatians. He's got something to prove. He is plainly defending himself from attacks. He is desperately wanting to persuade the Galatians to change a course of action and in the process to clear his name from certain kinds of accusations. Who is the biased writer, Paul or Luke? Who is more likely to distort the evidence? <laughs> the person who is involved in the struggle and needs to change people's minds? Or the other writer? So you see, even uh, if you start out with the presupposition that you cannot, um, that the Bible is not inspired or whatever, um, if you're going to be cautious about anyone's judgments and descriptions, I think it would be Paul's. Seems pretty obvious to me. Now, let me, uh, and this is anticipating some things that we're going to be dealing uh, uh, with more directly. Uh, as you can uh, imagine, I hope you understand, I think that Paul is trustworthy. But I do not think necessarily that Paul's statements in Galatians are of such a character that they in themselves allow you to reconstruct the history in a complete and persuasive fashion. Now, this is one of the problems that I think has uh, really uh, obstructed progress or whatever, in, in some of the debates between liberals and conservatives and so on. Uh, liberals tend to go to the material and they realize that there's, they, that uh, you know, nowhere in the Bible do you have 
complete information, the material is selected, whatever. And as good historians, because a good historian is always a little bit skeptical of his sources, uh, these liberals begin to make uh, statements about uh, the un supposed unreliability of the various documents and the apparent contradictions and so on. Conservatives, um, in response to that sort of thing, I think usually tend to ignore uh, the fact that none of these documents were written originally, were not intended to present all of the facts in completely balanced uh, fashion. Every time a, a biblical writer sat down to write something, there was a point that he was trying to make. And whenever you try to make a point, you select your material. You try to, to, to make your argument uh, look as strong as possible. Doesn't mean you're being dishonest. Doesn't mean that you're perverting the facts or uh, disturbing the, uh, but you always have to take into account what the author is trying to do. Now, an example that uh, I think some of you may have heard me uh, mention before is the uh, description of Herod uh, Agrippa in, um, in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 12. If all you knew about Agrippa was what you read in, in uh, Acts 12, you would infer that this man was, you know, the worst possible ruler that uh, the Jews ever had, a monster. Uh, he wants to please some of the Jews, and so he puts uh, James uh, in prison, and then he has him executed. And when he sees that people were happy about that, okay, let's try it again here. And he gets Peter and wants to execute him, but Peter escapes. And the next thing you know, uh, he, is, uh, he appears before the... Uh, uh, people of Tyre and Sidon uh, in all his glory and the sun is shining in his bright uh, vestments, whatever. And uh, he accepts, uh, you know, the attribution of divinity or whatever and, and therefore uh, God sends, um, God smites him and he dies. And uh, we have to keep in mind that when Luke was writing the book of Acts, and here you're dealing with a historical book. I think it is proper to call it a historical book. But we all realize that when Luke writes that book, he is not thinking, okay, you know, there are people in the 20th century who are going to need information about these political events, so I'll better provide all the facts, as you might in, a, in an encyclopedia. No. He had a particular purpose, particular themes, and he ignores all kinds of um, data with regard to Herod Agrippa, that therefore does not allow you to reconstruct Herod Agrippa's reign accurately if all you have is what Luke says. Now, what everything Luke says is accurate, and interestingly, you know how Josephus, uh, as a matter of fact, tells a story about uh, Agrippa's death that certainly fits in with what uh, uh, Luke tells us there. So, what Luke what Luke says is true so far as it goes, but it is not the whole story because that's, that was not his purpose. And so, if, and so you, you see what's happening here, a historian, that is someone who is interested not primarily in the message of the Bible, but they're interested primarily in reconstructing history. They have to take the book of Acts as one, as a 
partial witness, and I'm using the word partial in both senses, that he gives you only you know, some of the facts, and that he's biased. Why? Because he has certain things he wants to get across. And you see, it is true uh, that from that perspective, if what you're after is, is giving a full reconstruction, you have to exercise a measure of quote-unquote skepticism when you read the biblical material, not because what the writers are saying is wrong, but because if you're going to use this material to do something the writers were not intending to do, you're going to have to take other facts into account and try to integrate them in a, in a uh, reasonable way. Now, I don't have to tell you that even if we had better communication among scholars about this thing, you're still going to come up with, with some important conflicts between liberals and conservatives about, about this thing. But I think it is also true that a failure to um, describe or delimit uh, the function of the biblical uh, data uh, has been responsible for some unnecessary uh, conflicts uh, that have been going on uh, in the past you know, hundred years. In any case, what I'm getting at is this. If you want to reconstruct Paul's life and ministry, you are dealing here with two biased subjects. Biased in the sense that each of them has a particular point that they want to make, that they select the material differently because of, of different purposes, that they express the material different because of different uh, goals, and that inevitably, inevitably, you're going to find certain apparent apparent contradictions that happens always when you're dealing with witnesses to any event and as you probably realize it is often the case that um, if, if, if you're dealing with two witnesses in a, in a court case and the two witnesses agree perfectly that uh, probably suggests some kind of collusion so that their witness becomes less reliable because you expect uh, a variety of witnesses actually to express things differently, in fact so differently that at least at first it appears to be, hey, I don't see how those two things fit. Now if you can get these people to talk, oh yeah, this and the other, and then everything kind of, and, and uh, you might as well know, but I believe that if we could take Luke and Paul and say, wait a second, Luke, you said this here, but Paul said there. And Paul, how do you explain this? And they talked about it. Say, oh, yeah, but I mean this, I mean that. Okay, oh, now I see how these things fit together, you see. Unfortunately, we do not have them here to explain all these uh, problems. And we have exposure to only a relatively small percentage of the facts and so that throws us into a certain degree of speculation. Uh, some, uh, so that scholars are going to differ about uh, these, and, and you know what is the major problem here. What do you do with Acts 15 over against chapter two of Galatians? 
the, uh, there is an apparent connection between those two passages. But when you look at them carefully, there are certain differences that are not easy to explain. So you have some scholars saying there's a contradiction between them, and others who say no, the contradictions are only apparent. If the contradictions are only apparent, then both Luke and Paul are talking about the same incident. If the contradictions are real, then you have two options beyond the other ones. One is to say, uh, well, I guess you have three options. Option, the first option no one takes, to the best of my knowledge, and that is to say that um, uh, the book of Acts is to be trusted, and Paul is the one who cannot be trusted in his description of the events. Uh, a second one would be, you take Paul, and therefore Luke invented this story in Acts 15, or got all mixed up, he got two incidents, you know, confused, and, and so you cannot uh, use Acts, really, as a source. Or, what has become a favorite a position among evangelicals is to say, yes, the two passages are contradictory, but the reason they're contradictory is that they're talking about two different events altogether. In fact, uh, when the book of, uh, of Galatians, the Epistle of Galatians, was written, the meeting described in Acts 15 hadn't even taken place yet. So Paul couldn't be talking about that meeting. And so you solve the problem easily enough by, by posting two events that have some similarities, but as a matter of fact, have to be different because otherwise you end up in conflict. Now you see, I will be talking about that in more detail later on. All I'm saying at this point is, that is the kind of the classic example of divergences in the telling of the story that lead to multiple theories as to how to explain. Now, I am working on the assumption, as I began to say about 10 minutes ago, that the book of Acts may indeed be used to reconstruct. But you don't do this in some naive fashion uh, that is without recognizing that the book of Acts does not intend to provide every detail and that it has to be put within its own context. And then we'll see how that uh, can, uh, can be done. But now assuming that the book of Acts may be trusted, what can we do with it? And by the way, I intend to go maybe 15 or 20 more minutes today, let you go early. Uh, because I, I do want you to um, um, do some of this preliminary assignment of reading through Galatians and so on uh, before I continue with, with the story here. <coughs> but assuming that the book of Acts can be trusted, the question is, what kind of picture do we get, not just about Paul in the book of Acts, but about the character of early Christianity that may be of help to us in putting the Epistle to the Galatians in its proper historical context. And uh, you know, even though every commentator and everybody will talk about the historical background to the Galatians and so on, I don't think enough atten attention is often uh, paid 
to, to this broader question of, of the nature of early Christianity, particularly in evangelical circles, uh, if you want to make sense out of what's happening in Galatia, uh, that forces uh, Paul to, uh, to write that very important letter. I think you have to go back at least as far back as chapter 6 of the uh, Book of Acts. In a sense, that's where the story begins. You want to understand Galatia? The story of the problems in Galatia begin in chapter 6. Why? Because we're told there, in those days, when the number of disciples were, was increasing, the Grecian Jews, or the Greek-speaking Jews, or the Hellenistic Jews, among them complained against those of the Aramaic-speaking community, the uh, Hebraic Jews, if you will, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And you remember how the story develops from that. Now, you see, it is true. There's a measure of truth. There's a measure of truth in the position that says the book of Acts gives a picture of the early church uh, that is that sounds a little more bland than when you read Galatians. There is a measure of truth in that, but uh, that's not the whole story because it doesn't really take a great deal of perspicuity, uh, perspicacity is the word I want here, to appreciate that something is going on here. And you've got to learn to read between the lines. You can be pretty sure that whatever was going on in the community here, um, to assume that a dispute about the way in which the widows were being taken care of and to focus on that exclusively makes about as much sense as to say that you know, John and Mary got a divorce because John didn't like the way that Mary squeezed the uh, toothpaste too. Why? Maybe some particular day John just lost it when he saw his poor toothpaste tube squeeze in the middle and that was, you know, the last straw and they got a divorce. Well, you know that something else is going on there uh, beside it. And I think Luke is giving us a little bit of information in a very discreet way, to be sure, when he uh, specifies that there is some kind of distinction between the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews. Now, that's a more literal translation, right? The NIV is... Um, interpreting the material in a way which I think is valid, namely that in the early church you have uh, the uh, Palestinian Jews, if you will, you have to be thinking in terms of old Palestine, but, but people from the Holy Land who are using probably Aramaic, which is sometimes referred to as a Hebrew dialect or whatever, um, but there were also some people, presumably, who had come from the diaspora or whatever, and we don't. We wish we knew more about this sort of thing. 
All right, I was trying to um, set the background, the historical background, uh, to the Epistle to the Galatians by going over material in the Book of Acts that we normally don't take into account uh, when we're uh, thinking about Galatians, um, particularly because you're dealing, at least what we started dealing with last time, is a uh, relatively um, early period in the church. And um, I hope that before we're all finished, uh, we will uh, be sensitive to not only that there is uh, relevance here, but that it may even be, um, I don't want to use the word impossible, but uh, it'd be very difficult to really get a sense for what's happening in the Galatian community and how Paul responds to that, unless we have a, a fairly good grasp of uh, how those early developments actually shaped the early church. And you remember the point, uh, I think, as we were coming to the end of, the, uh, of our time last week, I was trying to make was that um, when you get to the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, you have this violent persecution that is unleashed against the uh, early Christians. And uh, the question that I was uh, raising uh, had to do with why in the world would we find that kind of a response in chapter 8, but not earlier in chapters 4 and 5? Why is it that as the apostles uh, preach and they're brought uh, to the uh, uh, authorities, uh, they are dealt with, the apostles are dealt with, with, you know, the, obviously the Jews are not happy with it, but they seem to be dealing with this as just one more Jewish sect, and uh, they tell them not to speak, whatever, but uh, it appears as though the church as a whole is left alone. But now, uh, the uh, reaction is completely different. Now the church is persecuted, people have to flee. Um, Saul and some others presumably go after them even outside of the immediate uh, environments. And um, the only answer that makes sense to me is that with the preaching of Stephen, something different really is happening in the early church that up to that point, we have no evidence that the early Christians, all of whom were Jews, by the way, as far as we can tell, were doing anything to separate the gospel from its Jewish setting, including the, um, uh, the uh, Jewish worship they would go to the temple to pray, have every reason to believe that the uh, babies were still being uh, circumcised, that uh, the whole pattern of life uh, in terms of, of this outward manifestation of worship and so on uh, continued to be basically the same, with a few things added, obviously, in terms of the specifically Christian worship. Uh, much less do we have any reason to think 
that the uh, apostles, uh, prior to this uh, chapter 7, this chapter 6 of, of the book of Acts, uh, have no evidence to think the apostles or the rest of the church were doing anything to undermine the Jewish establishment as such, at least not directly. What difference is there between the first five chapters and the next two chapters that might account for the difference in the reaction? The only thing that makes sense is that Stephen's preaching apparently was being was taking a, a, a somewhat different form that Stephen was probably indeed saying things with regard to the temple that people were not saying before. That he was uh, making comments about the, the law of Moses and so on that could at least uh, give some um, outward appearance of truth when people began to charge them with these accusations that they were blaspheming and, and saying all these awful things about the temple and about Moses. And, uh, and therefore, the bottom line, and this is the, the point that I was trying to make, is that there is something distinctive about Stephen's ministry that focuses in some way on the differences between Judaism and Christianity sufficiently to begin to raise some questions about whether or not uh, the Christian church may be viewed as you know, subsumed under Judaism or whether it is moving in a, in a quite different direction. And that I think Luke, at least between the lines, is trying to uh, help us to see that it is that second thing. And more importantly, that the character of Stephen's ministry anticipates uh, what uh, Saul begins to do after his conversion. What we're talking about now is abandoning, in some sense, certain distinctives of the Jewish religion for the sake of what appears to be a new religion. Now, I don't think anybody was saying it quite that blatantly or explicitly, and even, I mean, even ourselves, we may not want to use precisely that language uh, in terms of Judaism and, and Christianity. It's not, you know, that sort of thing exactly, but um, it could be interpreted that way. And, and that's, I guess what I'm trying to do is to make a distinction between the recognition that in, in the first century, Judaism was not a monolith, we tend to think of the Pharisees as, as uh, uh, more or less representing mainstream Judaism and so on, and, and we're becoming more and more conscious of the fact that it wasn't as simple as that. You, you really had a lot of multi-format in terms of expressions, and people just had to learn to live with that. But uh, again, the assumption is that all these were legitimate expressions of Judaism, and I think without any doubt that Christianity in its at the beginning was perceived in the same way. But now we're moving in a somewhat different direction. It is not um, Judaism as it is expressed in Christianity, but it is Christianity versus Judaism in some sense. And that gives them grounds for persecution in a way that, that even the most threatening um, you know, 
offensive things I uh, said earlier might not have. But anyway, in chapter 9, um, say in verse 20, there's a reference to uh, Saul preaching in, in Damascus. And um, 22, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned, learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch in the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Now, let me just say, parenthetically, why Barnabas of, of everybody? Well... I think the later story does give us a little bit of an indication. Barnabas himself was a Hellenistic Jew. He was from Cyprus. Um, that by itself doesn't prove anything, but, but I believe it is a factor that may play in, uh, in just in the whole picture. Barnabas took and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And you see, in a very subtle way, but Luke expects you to have been reading, you know, what he said earlier carefully. Uh, what he's really saying is, okay, Stephen uh, became a martyr, now Saul is picking up that mantle. And we don't have to go into some, remember it used to be a popular some generations ago to talk about the psychological effects on Saul from seeing, from seeing Stephen being martyred and his having taken a role in that. And, um, you know, I can't psychoanalyze my own wife. How can I? Expect to psychoanalyze somebody 2,000 years ago, that just doesn't make any sense. It may be, I mean, they, but, but the narrative doesn't really give us any indication of what was going on inside of, of Paul, specifically. Um, all we know is that Saul had been involved in it, and maybe he had been impressed in some way, so that, so that in terms of his own conversion, it is not altogether surprising that his ministry takes a form that um, uh, in some way picks up what uh, Stephen had been doing. And true to form, he evokes the same kind of response. Now they tried to kill him as they had tried to kill, as they wanted to kill Stephen. But the Christians had had enough of this nonsense uh, there. So in verse 30, when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but Luke doesn't say that they asked him. Uh, they just took him, and they sent him off to Tarsus. Love to know, you know, what conversation might, might have been taking place there, whether uh, Saul posted or not. Um, and, um, you know, I don't want to, to make these Christians sound particularly selfish or anything, I, I suspect they genuinely were concerned for Saul's uh, safety, but uh, they don't want any trouble. And they 
let me put it this way, this is just my interpretation, it's speculative and so on, they are not committed to whatever it was that Stephen was saying. They were not sufficiently committed to that to let it create problems. Of course, uh, Saul had originally come from uh, Tarsus, and so um, makes sense for him to go back there. And on the basis, remember the chronology of Galatians chapter 1, you understand that um, um, there is a period of at least 11 years, at least 11 years, uh, where we don't really know what was happening. I mean, we don't get any information other than what um, Luke tells us here. And uh, it is confirmed, again, by Galatians 1, but without specifics. Um, so for a decade, Paul is ministering in, in the province of Cilicia. And um, a lot of interesting stuff must have gone on during that time that we don't know about. And uh, his ministry must have um, taken on certain distinctive features within that Hellenistic context that may help us also to explain what happens subsequent to that. Now, we'll pick up on uh, Saul's uh, ministry in a moment. But within the narrative, in the context of the narrative of the book of Acts, you know that the next big step here, now the focus uh, switches to Peter. And uh, Peter uh, going to, uh, to the coast. And um, the uh, story of, um, well, you know, to the city of Lydda and the story of Tabitha. And then um, uh, the subtle comment at the very end of chapter 9, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. And again, it's a little difficult to uh, know for sure in these situations whether uh, how, how much Luke is trying to convey to us. But uh, the simple fact is that in rabbinic law, and as you know, sometimes it is difficult to know for sure how ancient some of these uh, halachot um, uh, are, but um, tanners were among the unclean. And uh, for Peter to uh, be in the house of a tanner may indicate, I'm not going to make too much of this, but may indicate something about Peter's own understanding uh, about his identity as a Jew, what that might, might not imply. In any case, it introduces us to the very, very significant uh, story of uh, Cornelius, which represents a rather major step in the whole narrative. You know how the book of Acts um, gives us the progress of the gospel, and that uh, you can look at that progress both uh, in terms of geographical extension if you pick up on that little statement, uh, which is worded in several ways, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the church grew and grew, or the word that grew and whatever, 
expressed in various ways. And um, I, I think it cannot be a coincidence that you can take each of those statements and uh, view them as signaling some kind of shift, uh, important uh, clues uh, with regard to uh, shifts in the narrative 